On this episode of Bangladeshi Women Entrepreneurs, you'll learn about Muntaha Qureshi, owner of Bridal Insignia. Learn more at Sada, S-A-A-D-A.org. Stay tuned. Today is February 24, 2021, and I'm here with Muntaha Qureshi, owner of Bridal Insignia. She's an event decorator in Metro Detroit. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Nice to be here. Thank you for doing that. You're welcome. So first of all, Montaha, tell me about your childhood. You know, as every um, immigrant here that comes here, you know, can relate. We came, I was 11, 10, 11 years old. Typical immigrant family. We started off in a small town, Hemtramck, <laughs> very dear, near and dear to my heart still. And my parents did everything they could to provide us, uh, you know, a good upbringing. They always emphasized education. It was something that was, you know, something we wouldn't, they wouldn't compromise on. But at the same time, I think we were a bit more lucky to be a bit more liberal uh, in a, rather in a household that was a bit more liberal. Um, my parents did give us more freedom to make our own choices, whether it was about careers or, you know, um, who we wanted to befriend or where we wanted our lives to go, which, you know, essentially shaped where I am right now. It, took a, it made a, it played a big part in where we ended up, all four of my siblings. And so um, I would say, you know, a, a sort of balance between being an immigrant family and then also just sort of um, giving us the freedom to learn and adapt. Uh, to our new environment rather than kind of structuring everything uh, for us. Do you remember uh, what year you came to the U.S.? First time in 91, but I was three and my dad hated it here. So we kept going back and forth for the next um, five years. We kept five or seven years. We kept kind of coming every two years to keep our visa active and then we'd go back a few months later. And then 97 is when we decided to come and stay because it was either we stay here as a family or my sisters and I would get shipped off to like a uh, boarding school from Bangladesh and my parents would stay in Bangladesh and we would be in a boarding school. So my dad eventually decided he's going to stay in and let us, you know, grow up here. Did you first live in New York or did you always live in Michigan? Virginia. It was Virginia. Um, when we would come back and forth, we would always stay in Virginia. And then in 97, when we came, my dad um, had a friend here who told him about Michigan and how great it is here. And we had no other family here. All my aunts and uncles were in Virginia. And then he just decided to come here and check it out. And then next thing we know, we're all moving here. So it was a matter of months. I think like a month or month and a half. He, he came, he saw the place, he liked it. He liked the community feel. Even back then, there was a very few people at the time, but still there was a, a community feel in Hintramic. And so he decided to just buy a house and say, we're moving to Michigan. <laughs> we started school in Virginia. We went to school for like two months. And then we had to pick back up and come here and start school all over again. Do you remember like the first day coming to Hemtramck or what it was like first moving to Michigan? You know, it was in like December and it was snowing and it was kind of terrifying because my dad was already here. So my mom, my older sister and my little sister, the three of us with my mom, we got on a Greyhound bus, which was like 16 or 17 hour trip. My mom is super courageous. Even then, back then, she didn't speak a word of English. She's like, I can do this. We didn't have cell phones. But she, you know, she's like, you know what? Your dad doesn't have to come to take us. Well, we can do this on our own. So we got on a bus from Greyhound with all of our stuff. And then, I know, took the Greyhound here. I have vague memories of it. <laughs> Not a hundred percent, but I'm, you know, I, I do recall coming, like kind of doing the all, all night um, road trip with the Greyhound bus and then getting picked up by my dad here and the 
bus bus station near Detroit. So. That's in, that's really interesting, actually, yeah. because that that's true. It sounds like a a big yeah. trip to take, especially all it women. Was, yeah, it was just kids, three kids and a woman, a lady, and no phones. You know, back then we take that for granted so much nowadays. Like phones, you know, everybody has one at least. Um, even kids have it, but back then no phones and you know, it's a big risk, but we made it safely. What can you tell me about growing up in Hamtramck and how long did you live in Hamtramck when you were a kid? Uh, 97 to 2003. That's when we moved to Sterling Heights. And, you know, growing up there, I feel like played a major part in how, um, how we've turned out, uh, in, as individuals, how our, how our personalities developed, um, being, friends with people who speak the same language or who are going through the same, you know, um, struggles as other, as I was, or just sort of understood the, you know, feel of a, a small town with lots of, you know, other Bengali people who may or may not say something if you, if you were caught doing the wrong thing, all of those played a major part in how we grew up. And I often compare to people I know who grew up that like, who are my age, but may have grown up with just sort of all white people or in a school that was all, you know, you know, and they were the minority, minority group there where they couldn't relate. And then they had to acclimate even more so to become more westernized, to kind of shed some of their culture because they were ashamed of it or, you know, because it it made them stand out too much. Whereas I feel like we sort of embraced it because there were other people who were there who had the same struggles, the same language barrier, the same you know, cultural differences. So nobody had to shed their culture. In fact, I think, you know, it helped me um, make really good friendship all through, you know, sort of people I still talk to. I found my husband in, in the city of Hemtramck. You know, it, it really defined a huge part of, I think, those critical teenage years, especially when, when teenagers are so insecure and they, you know, want to blend in so that they don't stand out. And in our cases, I feel like we didn't have to shed our culture and our surroundings. And what we were taught at home, in order to blend in, we could kind of embrace it and be and find a friendship because other people were going through the same thing as us. So, Hemtramck um, is, like I said, very near and dear to uh, my heart. So, tell me about, um, you know, what did you pursue in school, and how did your identity play a role in, you know, your professional life? So, I actually realized I like artistic things quite early, very creative, very early. And like I said, my parents never stopped us from pursuing things that made us happy. So my high school years, my last year, my senior year in high school, I had four art classes <laughs> because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go into fashion design. At the time, I thought I would be a, a good at fashion designing and I wanted to pursue that. Um, so art was like a major part of my life going up, going through high school. Then eventually, I think I did two years of fashion design in college, but then I realized I didn't want to go move out to California or New York and live a starving artist life. My practicality kicked in. So uh, my practical side made me reevaluate and think, you know, do I really want to take such a huge risk and um, continue in this line? Even though it was something I was passionate about, did I want to kind of stake everything on it, you know, giving up where I was living, what I was doing at the time, my relationships, everything just to move out and just pursue this with like a focus that I just didn't think I would be able to do. Um, I feel I give a lot of props to people who actually do pursue these type of lines of work because you need a really intense focus on just that. Nothing else can kind of get in the way of that career. Um, but I realized early on and I'm lucky in thinking that I realized before it was too late. So I sort of changed course and I went 
back to school for, I did my four-year degree in supply chain, did how many years? A couple of years, uh, I think almost seven years of corporate work in supply chain. I worked at Ford, um, GM, Beretta at Volkswagen. So I sort of, you know, had a couple of different um, industries. And then while I was still working corporate, I went sort of back to my niche, I guess, back to back to what was calling me, you know, something creative. It would left me thirsty for something to do that was creative because all I kept, all I was doing was nine to five, you know, corporate corporate world. And it didn't, um, I guess, scratch the creativity that I was sort of sitting on. So I found a different path <laughs> to pursue. And even though I worked supply chain or I studied supply chain and I did, you know, I think what seven or eight years of corporate work. And even though I've left it now fully to kind of concentrate on bridal insignia, I feel like it still plays a major part in how I do my business now. The organizational aspect came with me from working corporate, working with Excels and all that. I, I often pull up an Excel sheet when I'm sitting with a client and I give them a quote in Excel and people are always surprised that I, I'm not just jotting it down in, pieces, in a piece of paper. Same thing with you know man managing my own business, doing the logistic part of it is straight up from supply chain experience, from making a packing list for what we'll need to, in an event to you know, loading and then making sure everything gets unloaded and reloaded, et cetera. All the entire logistic aspect is everything directly related from supply chain. So I feel like it sort of helped me. It, nothing I, I had to completely shed. I feel like I used all of those skills still, but it's back to where now with Brian Signia events only, I'm back to being just creative. I don't have to be, you know, doing nine to five hat <laughs> anymore and not, not somebody else's work. It's my work. Do you want to tell me more about your family? You know, like how many siblings do you have? Growing up, um, we had, a, I always considered us having a big family because um, it wasn't just my, my parents and the four of us siblings. Um, we were very close to our cousins and like the external family too, or extended family too. Um, so I always felt like we had a big family and I always knew growing up, I would want one too. So like I mentioned, I already have two kids. I have two boys onto the third one. And I always used to say, I'm going to have five kids, but I don't know if I'm going to, I'm going to do that anymore. We'll see. Maybe we'll just stop at the three. <laughs> the three should be big enough for now. But yeah, we have a, a large family. Like our family still plays a, a huge support system in even um, not just our day-to-day -day lives, but my business as well. I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old and I've been doing brown insignia since um, for seven, eight years now. So they were both born as I was doing events, as I was kind of busy throughout summer months or you know wedding season. Um, so my mom, my mother-in-law, they played a huge role in raising my kids and watching them when I couldn't, or you know just kind of leaving me stress-free to sort of focus in on the events when I don't. That way, I don't have to think about who's feeding my children or who's watching my kids. And my husband also is a huge supporter in what I do. So. He'll take the kids when, when I'm busy. <laughs> we'll, we'll take turns. He'll watch them, take them off my hands on the weekends. And, and on weekdays, I'll do the same for him. So tell me, like, uh, growing up in a Bangladeshi household, what was, like, your role? And, like, how is that relationship you have with your siblings? Um, my older sister and I don't have a whole lot of, um, you know, we're, like, less than two years apart. So I feel like we always sort of grew up, as we are growing, we were fighting, but we also grew up friends. She was the first person I would go to. In my you know teenage years when there was something that was bothering me or somebody that was bothering me and she was my go-to person for you know my guidance basically um especially because my parents wouldn't have been able to relate so my my sister and i grew up my older sister and i grew up very close and you know to this day we still have the relationship i'm five years older than my my younger sister so 
So I almost feel like I played a mediator role between the older one and the younger one because they have a much larger gap. But then also if my older sister was being too harsh on my younger sister, I, I had to step up to be like, okay, you know, let's find the middle ground and the compromise here. But I have a great relationship with her as well because as she got older, I was the person who was able to guide her and kind of provide that type of experiences that none of our parents would be able to relate to, but we could because we had already walked those steps before them. So my younger sister, when she was much younger, I was the one, hey, did you do your homework? Did we, you know, did you study for the test, et cetera, that, those type of questions. But as she got older and started going through her own experiences, I was the person who was like that, you know, sounding board. Hey, you know, what do you think of this? Whether it was fashion related, whatever it was, friends or, you know, other topics, <laughs> topic related. So, but we still have a great relationship. I feel like they're my siblings, you know, aside from being a support system, you know, if ever uh, a situation came when I didn't know who to turn and turn to, they would be the people like I would think of first. And my brother, he's, uh, he's much younger than us, but, you know, and he was the only boy. So he was spoiled rotten as he grew older. And now, you know, he's sort of um, finding his own path and we provide guidance where we can. I'm the person he'll come and talk to when it's comes in, when it's like career related or school or education related. But yeah, he, he'll, he'll, he's there, but you know, it's like girls bond on a different level than you do with your younger brother. So he's still very much a younger brother. So tell me about bridal insignia. What, you know, led you or inspired you to start it? Uh, the journey really began with my older sister's wedding. She was so hands off planning her event completely. She didn't even care about the colors. She didn't care what venue, nothing. She was just like, just tell me where to show up and when. My mom was like, okay, you know, maybe you should just kind of make these decisions for her. So not a typical bride at all. And I kind of took the reins. I'm like, okay, I like this venue. You know, we got some venues, we finalized the venue. And I was like, you know what? I like these colors. This is what she's wearing. So this is what will complement it. And all of it just sort of started from that event. And it's been 15 years maybe now since she's been married. So really the seed was planted after her wedding. At the time, I was still going through my uncertainties about whether or not I wanted, I wanted to change from fashion design to supply change and sort of you know find my way. And I did her event. I loved doing her event. I thought it was such an adrenaline, adrenaline rush because you know it really made me just sort of be as creative as I wanted to. And then, you know, find the balance between creativity, decor with budget, et cetera. You know, just lots of thought process behind it, planning an event. And then there was really nothing. I didn't pursue it for years. My, my fiance at the time, my, not my husband yet, he was like, you know, you're good at this. You should try something like this later. And I was still so focused on finishing college at the time that I didn't think much of it. So that went. And then, what is it, three, four years later, I was getting married. At the time, it was still there was still no bridal insignia, but I think the final push to start something was when I was when I hired my decorator, and uh, you know they promised the world of everything. I said yes, yes, we can do it, we can do it, and then they didn't deliver. Everything I'd asked for was either not the way I'd wanted it. I remember my wedding. Um, there's a stage platform. I'll get very detailed about the decor piece of it, but. There's, you know, the stage where the bride and groom sit and the platform, the risers, um, typically a venue will provide risers that are either four by eight, you know, squares or four by four by six pieces. So they're essentially pushed together to create the bigger platform. They didn't even cover the riser with any type of stage covering. So 
as I was standing on the stage, I had to be mindful that my heel didn't sink in between where the gaps were because I could have, or really remind guests too, hey, be careful where you're stepping because there was just, it was just completely unfinished. They left us a sofa that was broken. There was no side chairs. So I remember everybody was sort of sitting awkwardly. I still cringed when I look at my wedding pictures because, you know, nobody had side, like guests who were getting up on the stage to take pictures didn't have chairs to sit on. So they were either standing with us or sitting awkwardly in the arm of the sofa that where we were. So it was a very um, terrible experience as far as decor went. And then afterwards, I promised myself, I'm like, if I ever do this, I'm going to do this right. So I make sure, so I can make sure my brides are happy and they don't have anything to complain about. And that this one day that they're looking so forward to, you know, have planning it and spending so much money that they're not regretful, like after the fact, like, well, what did, why did I hire this person? Or why did I, why did the experience turn out this terrible? I always wanted, I, I wanted to make sure that nobody else had to sort of go through that again. That was the final turn. Like I got married and then I moved to Virginia and I was like, I'm doing this and I'm going to start. Um, at the time in Virginia, I had a partner. She was also somebody who was very creative and wanted to do this, but kind of hesitant to start on her own. So we joined forces and we were good friends. So we joined forces and we started the company together in Virginia. That was 2014. So eight years, seven years ago now. So we started that for three years. We kept it going. And then, you know, life changes happen. Kids come along, um, priorities shift. And then we were moving here. So um, we closed the Virginia chapter and then moved here and we started it again here as a, a sole proprietor rather than a partnership. What were some of the initial challenges you had when you opened your business? Overcoming your own hesitation, right? Doubt, that self-doubt, like, can I really do this? It's a big step. It's, uh, you know, whether you start off in big with a big step or in small steps and sort of get there, it still is that hesitation. Is this something I want to do? Do I really want to follow through? Is this something that's going to be worth it? And I think having a partner in the beginning really helped because you have that sounding board of somebody who is sort of experiencing and feeling the same and you give each other courage and you sort of, you know, overcome each other's fears too together. So that helped. I feel like that was one of the best decisions, um, starting it off with somebody else who was also passionate about it. Anytime there was a dull, you know, and when you start a new business, it's not go, go, go um, right off the bat. It's very slow progression. It's actually you know, maybe we have an event. It's a lot of work to even get the first event. But once you do get a first event, you know, a lot of um, free events that you end up doing, advertising events, etc. And then when you do get the first client, the second one and the first one, there's a lot of space in between, a lot of time in between. So that's, that's a lot of time for doubts to creep back in, right? So I remember thinking like, you know, the first couple of years, like, oh, is this, you know, is this worth it? Do we really want to even start buying things and, and getting a warehouse, the storage to start paying, you know, to accruing some of these expenses, where is this heading? We would encourage each other, like, no, inshallah, it'll go somewhere. You know, we have to keep, keep trying and keep fighting and keep pushing and keep getting our name out there and it eventually pay off. So, you know, alhamdulillah, eventually, and now here we are. Rather, it's me by myself now, but, you know, alhamdulillah, from where we had started to having events, maybe three or four events a year, to now in 2019, so I shouldn't say 2020 because that was an odd year, but 2019, um, I, I think we did like 120 events or something like that, like small and large events combined for the whole year. So alhamdulillah, <laughs> and knocking on wood as well. When you um, began your business, do you feel like there were other female entrepreneurs that you could look to as an example? In Michigan, there weren't any, um, at least 
you know, South Asian females that were doing it. There was very few, from what I recall. But in Virginia, there was, um, and I don't really know where she was from, but we followed her work quite a bit. And, you know, she was very creative and her name was Khadija and she used to do, I think she was like um, from Arabic descent, maybe. So she did a lot of the Desi events and we used to follow and see, you know, and she's doing pretty good. She was a source of inspiration for both of us because we're like, if she can make it and she can do it. And in Virginia, the environment's slightly different here. You have a community feel. So word of mouth is big for a business um, in Michigan. You can do well in one event and people will see your work or ask about your work and the word spreads. In Virginia, uh, it's not quite the same feel because there it's just too much space. People live too far apart. Um, the whole DMV area, you know, Virginia, Maryland and DC area is just so vast. And there's so many opportunities for people to just go with other vendors that it was difficult to capture that, you know, that uh, community feel there. Also, word of mouth didn't make an impact because the people who are attending that event may be from like miles, you know, miles away where you're not even doing going this far out to do events. So it didn't really make make too much of a difference for us. But eventually we did get our footing in, but then it was time to pack up and, and bring it here. So I would say in Virginia, there was a one one person we would kind of look up to and and get inspiration from. Um, and she wasn't Desi per se. I feel like she was like Middle Eastern, but a woman. Here in Michigan, at the time, there weren't anybody, um, any females that were doing what we're doing. Um, there were Indian male companies, like companies owned by males who were doing it. You know, I don't think they're in business anymore, but there was a lot of this, this market used to be sort of dominated by you know, like Keldians or Arabic people, because uh, they've been, they would cater to their people and Bengali people did not having anywhere else to turn would go to them as well. And, you know, Arabic events are slightly different. They, they're not similar to this events. They don't have the same type of stage layout. They don't do the same type of decor. So, you know, kind of explaining what you wanted took a lot. What I remember even from when I was getting married, I, I ended up going with somebody who was not um, Desi, so I had to explain, you know, how our events differed and how we needed a bigger stage platform. We needed sofa and chairs and not a sweetheart table on the stage. We needed the room layout to be different. We didn't care so much about a dance floor because nobody really did dancing. You know, it was a very different type of event for these events than Western events or Arabic events. So explaining that and, and making sure they understood it. Eventually, I feel like some of them understood and they grasped it, but um, like llamas is one of them. They do a lot. They did do a lot of these events, and they they understood okay what the difference is and and how to cater to that. Uh, but I feel like one of the first female owned company it was Brennell Insignia in Michigan. And since then there have been a lot. So there's been a lot of new startups, and I encourage it all the time when I see those. It makes me happy because you know it's a step forward <laughs> for the for the generation. What does it mean for you to be a female Bangladeshi entrepreneur? You know I don't think much of it on a day-to-day basis. I feel like I don't really, you know, it's not like I face any hurdles because I'm female or because I'm a Bangladeshi. In fact, I always thought it's a, a, you know, a positive thing that I could relate not just to Bengali people, but Indian Pakistani people as well, because um, when they're talking about an event or some sort of restriction that they face and they don't want, that they don't know how to talk about or um, how to find a creative outlet to a problem that's coming up, I feel like I could relate and I could understand their struggles a little better being Bengali and being female. Men often don't have the same perspective as women. And I feel like this type of business is not for them, especially if you're a very detailed person. 
So they're very, rather if you're not a very detailed person. Being a female has always, I feel like, has kind of given me that step up in this business. People realize I could understand what they're talking about. I could find a creative solution to a problem. And I'll give you an example of this. You know how in, in they see it at w- uh, weddings, right? Nobody really pays attention to a res- reserve sign. Um, you put a reserve sign on a table and people just ignore it. They don't even think twice about sitting on it because even if it is, you know, saved perhaps for a, a family or close, fr- you know, close uh, friends, etc., it's completely ignored. So when I was still doing events in Virginia, we would come here and we did couple of events in Michigan, even though I was still based out of Virginia at the time. Um, One of the first things we started doing was changing the shape of the table. So if it's a round table and all the guest tables are round tables, nobody's paying attention and they're just sitting down. We changed it to where, you know, that was a problem. My my brides are like, I don't really even want to do a a reserve table because nobody pays attention. One of the solution was let's change the shape of it. Let's change it to a rectangular table. And let's make it a you know a more elaborate rectangular table. Let's call it a, a head table or a, a VIP table, and put different decor on it. That way, people will hesitate when they see this table physically looking different than all the rest of the round tables. They'll think, okay, maybe I shouldn't sit on this because it's different, and maybe it's meant for somebody else. And maybe then they'll notice. And it worked. You know, changing the shape and the decor on those those type of family tables, VIP tables really worked because now your normal guests are not. You know, going to go sit on it. And the other reason um, we kind of pursued that, and it was also a creative, you know, solution for brides. Um, they see events tend to be on average 300, you know, and before COVID, 300 to 800 to 1,000 people, you know, you name it, they're larger events, much larger. And when you're paying per person to a venue for a large event, large scale event like that, your cost is very high. So Oftentimes, budget gets cut where where it needs to be, like where decor is concerned, or perhaps you know they have to kind of cut back where where they can't get everything they want. Another creative solution to finding you know to that type of problem, balancing budget with decor, was to focus on the stage and the head tables that we can put closer to the stage and sort of make that area be more elaborate, and then. Keep the rest of the guest tables more simple because if you think about it and you have an 800 people event that's 10 guests per table 80 tables before covid 80 tables times 80 centerpieces is a lot versus if you were to just do two or three long you know family tables and put all your centerpieces or nicer decor on there and then just focus on the stage um you can kind of cut your budget and ha- like you don't have to spend as much you can kind of do everything you have uh you wanted within that budget and not spread it out throughout the whole room but sort of keep it in one area ahead it has a better impact visually when people walk in they see the decor it, it sinks in like this is the area for the family or this is the more you know this is what's getting photographed it just ends up being making more of an impact visually. So some of those things, I don't think uh, a male would have been able to, you know, kind of come to these solutions just because they're not thinking visually what would look nice and what the, what the bride may even be going for or, you know, as Western events or Western decorators or Arabic decorators, their events are a lot smaller, two to 200 people, 250, 300 at the most. They don't have the same struggles for like a larger scale event. So these, this is where I feel like being a Bengali woman entrepreneur helped helped me kind of connect with my clients a lot better and, and give them a different uh, viewpoint and a different creative solution to problems that they didn't know how else to resolve. Can you tell me about your biggest client bases? I actually would say it's a it's almost even between Bengali and Pakistani number of clients and then Indian clients. If it's 30% Bengali, 30% Pakistani, about 20% Indian, and then 20% 
just you know American or Arabic or non Desi. Um, but it's it's a, even I was surprised by that too when I when we started doing events here. Um, one of the first events in 2017 that we did was Pakistani. Since then, just word of mouth has been a huge generator in that community for us. Up until very recently, there wasn't any Pakistani like women decorators in the community that they could turn to. So they came to us and we were able to cater to what they needed. Since you started in Michigan, what are some trends you've seen at weddings that you can tell us about in terms of how the weddings are decorated? Going back to when my sister got married, uh, or even before that, people didn't focus so much on the decor. They cared about the venue, as long as it accommodated the guest count, because capacity needed to be there since our events always were larger. And then they needed to make sure the venue allowed outside catering because we needed to bring in halal food. So those two are huge. And then, you know, food was the next biggest thing people concentrated on because, hey, that's what people talked about after they left, right? That the food was good or not. Since then, though, there's been a major shift in how people saw decor. And I'm sure social media played a, impacted it greatly. But people be, before didn't care so much what the decor looked like, what the stage looked like, what whether or not the aesthetic made sense, you know, whether it complemented the bride's outfit, whether the decor um, even stood out or not, you know, if it if it even made, told a story, whether there was any cohesiveness in it. Since then, though, decor is a huge decision these days it's no longer just letting the venue do whatever or just hiring so and so because my dad said this is a good person and letting them just do anything brides are very much involved so that's the number one trend i would you know what they how they want their the aesthetic to look like in their event whether they want people to come in and feel like this is a a very you know glamorous event or if this is a very traditional event if this is a very simple and elegant event you know what i mean like the, the story it tells overall decor plays a part in telling and then the other trends, I would say, you know, COVID, COVID changed the rules a bit last year. Um, we saw a huge shift. We saw some things that we never thought, you know, would happen. We saw guest lists being cut down to, you know, 20% of what previously would have been. We saw a lot of outdoor events. We saw a lot of decor that would enhance the surrounding rather than, you know, if it's a tent event or if it's a, a, a gazebo event, decor that would kind of complement the surrounding rather than what the bride was wearing or what story she wanted to tell with decor so last year was different and i feel like going forward it would be a sort of a blend of the two but prior to last year before 2020 2019 um any other trends were just we saw a shift away from traditional decor it wasn't any longer bride were like you know i'm wearing red so let's just do red and gold all over you know People were open to experimenting with different floral arches, different color schemes, you know, just sort of open to more suggestions and, and the idea that it doesn't all, all the events don't have to look the same, that rather than just picking something we like, let's see if, if this is something that'll complement it. Let's think about the big picture um, as a whole. When people walk into your event, what do you want them to see? What do you want them to feel? How do you want them to remember it after they've left? Some of those big picture, you know, questions. I don't think people were thinking about that before, especially in the Desi community. It was just more like, uh, you know what? I need to worry about the venue. I need to worry about the food and the photographer. And that was it. I, I think now decor plays a much, much bigger role than what we what it did previously. What are some yeah. of your favorite events that you like to decorate? I love it when we can be as creative, uh, you know, when brides say, you know what? Um, what do you recommend? And, you know, here's the space we're working with. What do you think would look great? 
And I love it if they give us a free reign because then I feel like, you know, there's very few restrictions and, you know, where we would take it. If a bride is very particular about how she wants things, and I was like that. So I appreciate that. and I respect that a lot. Um, that's fine because it gives us very clear directions. But if a bride comes to us and says, I don't really have anything in mind, what do you recommend? Those I think are my, might be my favorite because it gives me the ability to be more creative with where we're taking this event. As long as we find it, with, we can keep it within their budget. Because that, that plays a, a crucial role too. It's always the, the balance between budget and decor. That's like the seesaw we always try to um, play. It's not just um, sticking within traditional color schemes like gold and red or you know um, what we are used to seeing. Sometimes when they come and say, you know what, I like this whole black and gold thing and it's very dramatic, but I want it. Let's go for it. You know, those out of the ordinary, out of the norm events, those always stick out to me because after doing... So many, it's hard to keep track of what we did where, but, but pictures help in that case. But the ones that do, I do remember afterwards and I did have fun with are the ones where we got to be more creative um, and kind of, kind of push the limit a bit more, go outside of the box. What would you say, um, like pre-COVID, how much do people usually tend to spend on weddings? You know, guest count used to be higher back then, right? So that made a big difference because when we give the quote, it's based on, it, we don't do pre-packages. Uh, because it doesn't make sense. One person might have a hundred people wedding, another person a thousand people wedding, and the packages won't apply evenly, you know, in both cases. So what we do is always after the consultation is done, we give them an itemized quote based on their services that they need. So whether it's just a stage or if it's stage centerpieces, table covers, chair covers, um, entrance, you name it, like the whole event decor. You know, as you can see, it could vary based on client needs and then obviously client budget, but. On average, I would say like 25 to 30, you know, 3,500 is a good number, especially if you have a guest count that goes three to 400, 450 maybe. That being said, there were outliers where, you know, some events, um, if, if, if a bride had four events, which we did, and, you know, then her budget was a lot larger because now you're looking at decor for four different events. Um, or if, a, you know, on the flip end of it, if a budget just had a very small, simple ceremony or just a small, simple intimate event at home then you can imagine the bride's going to have a lot smaller budget for that event but essentially it really comes down to guest count because that's determining how many tables you'll need how many um table covers chair covers um, centerpieces you might want to put on those tables so guest count is a huge a huge um factor in how much decor you end up needing and then really it comes down to taste level right people how much do they want to do in that event some people come in they're like i just want very simple things and i just want it very simple and elegant and some people come in they're like we want over the top as extra as it can be and you know we want to spend the money on it because this is some this is the one time we're going to do it so what would you say um changed about your business over the years well first and foremost you know we started off being partners equal partner in the business of business so as you can imagine we shared um the decision making which was great because you know sometimes when you're starting off something and you're doubting yourself um, having somebody else agree or disagree with your opinion kind of helps you know guide the way um but that being said you know you also shared the risk um in the beginning when we had started we shared risk equally and it wasn't just hey if this fails it's just my failings alone if somebody else was there to say like, you know what we tried and we failed and and that's okay. Three years into the business, we moved here. So since then, it's been all mine. And, you know, being a, a sole proprietor or sole um, owner of a company has also its risks and rewards. So obviously, um, 
all the risks are mine alone. So every decision I make, and you know, I'm lucky to have my husband be a, a huge um, supporter in this for me. He doesn't have a day to day role in the business. He'll, but he is there when I need him as my sounding board. As you know, when I have questions whether I should um, expand or you know buy something from overseas, he's always there to kind of guide me or answer my questions or provide his input in it. So that's great that I have that. But essentially, the, the decision comes to you know my own. And any decision I make that impacts my business is also the consequences are my own too. So that's one way it's changed. Now I no longer share that responsibility and the risks and the rewards it's all mine. But we've also evolved as a you know a decorator too. You know, inventory wise, we had started off when we started. We had a ten by ten square you know storage unit. Um, eventually, it got to ten by thirty storage unit, and now I have a twenty five hundred square foot storage unit as well as an office space. So you know, alhamdulillah, those are things I'm very proud of that we've made those decisions a couple of years ago to expand. And um, I thought it was a lot of space. I thought I would never be able to fill it up. But if you come and see my warehouse, it's, it's packed. I, I'm going to need to um, get a second unit soon. Um, and so, you know, if 2020 hadn't happened, we may have already gotten to that point. But COVID happened, things halted. I was lucky to, uh, you know, not have to shut my doors. I was lucky to still continue and still, you know, stay afloat. But 2020 wasn't easy. Um, but, you know, inshallah, next year and this year, uh, things pick right back up where we left off. Um, but, yeah, we've expanded far beyond where we were. Personally, I've also grown, too. You know, I would, we always did the fresh flowers in-house. Um, even when I started um, in Virginia, the fresh flowers we did by ourselves. But how we used to do them to how we do them now, you know, a lot of learning curve in between. Lots of things we didn't know before that we know now, how to process the flowers properly, how to um, make sure that they're, you know, you know, when you order flowers, they come in as buds, really they're closed buds. So you have to process them so they can open and um, bloom before the event. So just even that timeline, figuring it out, how soon, how early do you need to order it? How many days before the event doesn't need to come in? Summer versus winter, being, you know, being mindful of the weather. All of those factors, you know, those are all part of the learning curve for just just doing and, uh, you know, the experiences. We've lost a lot of flowers along the way where we had to repurchase because it wasn't done properly or um, because they just wilted because it was too hot and we didn't think about it. You know, all those situations um, just taught me to keep going and keep learning from those small mistakes so that we don't do them, do them again. What would you like to tell me about your role as a mom and in, in this journey that you have? You know, first and foremost, I think I would want my kids who are boys, I want them to know um, and learn that females really can do anything they set their mind to. Um, I worked all through, I did events and I did corporate work nine through five and on weekends as I was pregnant both times, both times after my kids were born, when I had to go to events in the weekends, especially when they're very little, they actually went to events with me. Um, I nursed them while I had to stop. I had to stop and nurse them if I had to, you know, in between events set up. While my people worked, I was, you know, my staff was doing what they had to do. And I took a break to nurse my child and he sat in a stroller and, and kind of tagged along. All of that happened. And I feel like I want them to, as they get older, first, I want them to value hard work because none of this, none of that was easy. Juggling to be a mom, you know, a wife, a, a Part of a family, a household, taking care of a household, but then also managing a business. I feel like it's almost double, you know, what a male would have, male counterpart would have to think about. But that being said, you know, as they get older, um, they'll hopefully appreciate hard work, but also appreciate, you know, how much a woman, a, a female can do once they set their mind to it. Um, it's not just a man's world anymore. It's never been, but 
You know, I feel like we need to raise our kids, especially Asian children, like kids who grew up in traditional families or who see traditional families or more conservative families. I, I feel like we need to kind of make sure they understand that going forward, females will have a much bigger say and, and not in just in their own lives, but in the community as a whole, um, because they're playing those roles and they're taking up those initiatives and they're taking, you know, those leadership positions or just overall, just being small community things, but they, they have a say in it. And I feel like our sons need to be aware of that and, and, you know, kind of grow up respecting it. <laughs> so that definitely uh, plays a role in how I, how I manage my business and, and how I raise my kids and how I, how I see ourselves growing as a family, as the business continues to grow, how, you know, how I would want them to kind of, you know, how they would play a part in it. Would they be part of something, you know, do I want them to be part of my business and take a role in it with me or pursue their own happiness and do what they like best to play an impact? What would you like people to know about Detroit's Bangladeshi women entrepreneurs as a whole? As a whole, I feel like we're resilient. <laughs> Throw anything at us and I think we'll come come uh, out of it, you know, because, you know, I don't think it's necessarily from being around Detroit and Tramic area, but I think a lot of us are parents make a lot of sacrifices growing, you know, growing up, they sacrifice their happiness to provide these opportunities for us. So I've always felt like women who, or not just women, even males who have seen that don't waste that opportunity. And so they learn to be a bit more resilient if there are, you know, obstacles in their path, anything's kind of possible to overcome. If you've kind of, you know, focus on where you need to go and what you need to do. Um, and just remember the sacrifices your parents made for you to have this opportunity to begin with. So I would say that about people from around here. I feel like everybody's had some sort of struggle kind of kind of growing up and seeing their parents struggle. What do you want people to know about your journey? What, what is that takeaway? Being an entrepreneur, being starting something on, their, on my own or starting something again on my own, just making all those changes, you know, all the doubts along the way. Um, whether or not to quit, whether or not to leave the business, sell it or bring it to Michigan, all of those questions, all the small and large decisions. I think if I was to summarize, I would say first and foremost, um, take that step to kind of go for it. Because I feel like if you never do, then there's all these doubts and you're never, you never would find out where you, you know, how far you can take something or what it could be, what the potential could be. If you have a thought in mind and you want to do something and you, um, you know, you want to start something or just kind of, even if it's not starting something new, but, you know, doing something you've always wanted to do, I would always encourage people to do it. And on that note, I actually like to just kind of comment how I love seeing in social media all these new entrepreneurs who are stepping out and doing something creative and something there's so many so many to choose from who are doing something out of the box or just even pursuing a dream you know that's not your doctor or lawyer or you know nine to five or you know what I mean like your ordinary typical jobs and then surround yourself with people who you can talk to who you can bounce ideas from who you can get inspiration from or inspire others it really is always about surrounding yourself with people who can support you and you can support them that kind of like you know you grow and they're growing with you as well kind of help each other if you feel like you're surrounding yourself with the wrong people it's never gonna take you anywhere people who are you know, always the naysayers who are saying, no, you can't do this, or I know this is the wrong idea, or this isn't the way to go. Um, the naysayers will always pause and stop you and kind of put more doubt and hesitation. Those would be my two, two takeaways from this journey. 
What's the next for you? There are lots of plans next. First, um, you know, Grand Insignia has a lot to do still. We, you know, we're not where our potential, we're, we're, we're not where the capacity is. So I feel like the business can still grow. We can still do a lot in the community and grow our, grow the clientele. It doesn't have to be just Desi or, you know, Bengali and Pakistani. We can keep pushing and getting different types of clients. So that's um, first and foremost. But outside of Bridal Insignia, you know, my husband and I, we, we have a small initiative we've started that we actually started that we we can give it a name to now um which is green door home styling so we do we buy and sell houses we renovate them and we stage them and then we sell them so that's something else we've worked on i have another small business i do with my sister that we where we sell jewelry so it kind of plays into brand insignia we do lots of wedding indian you know jewelry and uh, wedding jewelry, etc. So MPI jewels. So those are some things that still have a lot of potential. They're still growing. Um, my family's growing. <laughs> I'm going to have a third child soon. So that's on there as well. And then lastly, I think I would kind of, you know, eventually I want to get to where we own a venue. I, I don't, I, I've had that dream for some time. It's something we've talked about a lot. We've bounced ideas with. Now we're not there yet. We're not there where we can um, go ahead and just start and open up a venue but I feel like you know that's something that's in my mind and it has been for some time and eventually you know inshallah we get there as well so those are some next things that sounds like an exciting next few things <laughs> there's always a lot going on so I don't mind right like if you just sit around and there's nothing going on I feel like life's too short for that. So you should always surround yourself with things to do that make you happy. Well I'd like to thank you again for your time and for the interview. If there's anything else you'd like to um, add before we end off, any other thoughts you you have or anything I didn't ask you that you'd like to share about yourself? I guess, you know, the only other thing I have in mind is just to let women and just people in general know the first, like I said, the first step is a step is really hard. That's the most difficult thing. But once you take it, everything else sort of falls in place, all the hurdles. And eventually after, and when you look back in it, you know, it's all worth it. Even the, the struggles of, um, you know, balancing life everyday life family life with a business and making that decision on how you want to change if you want to do a career change etc all of those eventually fall in place and at the end of the day if you fail you fail but at least you've tried right and at least you've given it your best so and you wouldn't know where it would lead until you give that shot so i think that would be my last thought thank you so much for this interview it was great You're learning welcome. about your business thank you learn more at sada s-a-a-d-a dot org Stay tuned.